You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. All right, we're going to jump right in. This morning we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 3. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, um, I want to invite you to pull it out and get in to find 1 Kings chapter 3 in the Old Testament. Um, the best way to engage the message is with the Bible, something to write on, something to write with. And if you don't have a Bible, if you'll raise your hand, someone will bring you a Bible. All right. Before we get there, I want to talk about lobster eyes. Okay. Um, <laughs> Lobster eyes are amazing to me, and I've, I've talked about them before. I'm going to talk about them again. Lobsters see the world significantly differently than the rest of us. Human eyes process images by absorbing a thousand points of, of refracted light, and then they send those images to the brain, your eyes send those images to the brain where they're synthesized into a single image. So it's basically for us a three-part process. Our eyes absorb multiple bits of data, which is then sent to the brain, which collates it and makes an image. That's how humans see, and that's how most animals see as well, except lobsters. Lobsters see differently. Lobsters live at the bottom of the sea, so it would actually make more sense if evolutionarily to, for them to just be blind and to use their other senses to make it up but um, they're not, they're not blind. Their eyes are designed to see directly into an object. It's almost like their, brines, their, their eyes have their own brains. They, they see directly into an object, focusing on a single point, and then di- directly interpreting the information gathered through a dozen tiny channels in their eyes. So in other words, they don't see by outsourcing the information to the brain, collating it, then reintroducing it. Instead, the, the work of seeing is all done in one step through the eyes. And you know that feeling of listening to somebody talk about something that seems totally in- inane right up until the minute it's not? Sort of like what I'm doing to you right now. <laughs> and you think they're foolish and irrelevant. Come on, let's get to it. And then you realize, oh, I had that moment when I was listening to this scientist talk about lobster eyes and everything he'd learned about lobster eyes, and I was thinking the whole time I was listening, because I don't have the mind for these things, what a waste of time this is that a man has given his whole life to just understanding what lobsters see and how they see. Surely there's a better way to spend his time than that. But, but, um, but then he did it. Then he said, the whole reason we discover, I mean, we, we, we explore how lobsters see is so we can technologically find better ways to see things like x-ray. So, so they've developed an x-ray machine the size of a flashlight. Compare that with what you get in the airport, right? <laughs> that can see and absorb and interpret a whole image, just a flashlight. These machines can also three, see through three-foot walls, and, and that means less radiation, better health, um, less, less cost. And, and I am blown away by people who can look at how a lobster sees 
and make a leap that does not seem at all to me like a logical leap. Oh, hey, why don't I look at this lobster eye and then talk about x-rays? It just doesn't seem like a logical leap to me. But somehow they leap from that thing to something else much bigger and seemingly unrelated, and they make these brilliant connections that change the world. It's kind of a superpower to be able to see things differently than other people see them to be able to cut through the foolishness and filters so we can see not just what can be, but what actually is. Does that make sense? I believe that's what Paul was talking about when Paul says, when he talks to the Corinthians about wisdom, he he tells them, you've got to learn spirit-taught words to explain spirit realities. He calls it taking on the mind of Christ. Paul, a a brilliant Jewish theologian, seemed to be completely taken by this idea of having a mind governed by the Spirit. That's how he talked about it to the Romans. And he said that a mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And, And he said this, he urged them to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. It seems to me that if Paul, and, and really you find it all over the Bible, if, 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 if the trick is how, in how we filter reality, in other words, it all begins, it seems to me that the trick is how we think. Because let's get honest here. Some of us are prone to making choices based on pain avoidance. Don't look at the person you're with right now. Don't look at them. Because I know, yeah, that's right, thank you. For one honest soul in the room, there's two actually. (laughs) We make decisions based on pain avoidance or immediate gratification. And those choices have consequences, sometimes huge consequences. So how do you make your decisions? Because decisions determine destiny. That would be your first set of notes. Your first note, decisions determine destiny. I've said this before, and I'll keep saying it, because I think it is huge for the Christian to learn a better way of responding to life. Decisions determine destiny. I I find myself coming back to that truth over and over because our relational choices, our moral choices, our voting choices, parenting choices, spiritual choices, health habits, how we respond to life, and especially to conflict, All those decisions have potential to shape not just our lives, but the world around us. Decisions determine destiny. So when I stand up here and I pray, and I used to pray this every single Sunday. I pray it every once in a while now, but when I pray for you to have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive everything God has for us, what I'm really praying for is, is I'm asking that God would give us a kind of spiritual lobster eye. I'm praying for eyes that bypass the normal processes and the fallen filters so we can see what God sees. I am praying for the mind of Christ to descend on us. I'm praying for that supernatural ability to see truth and then live into it. And so that's what I want to pray this morning before we open the word. And so I'm asking you to just just lean in for a minute. Lord, I am praying this morning as earnestly as my fallen, broken self can pray it, that you would give us eyes to see. When we see these stories in the scripture, as we open 
this series on wisdom, Lord, I am asking you to give us eyes to see what you see. And that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying beyond my words, beyond other people's words, to hear what the Spirit is saying. And a heart that is able not just to receive it, but to process it and live it. That's my prayer, God. I pray that earnestly and deeply for all of us in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So I have to tell you, the series that we're about to start today, it wasn't on my radar a few weeks ago. At the beginning of this year, which is usually when we do worship planning, um, I, <laughs> I had a whole different series in mind that would have started today, and it was based on where I thought we would be as a community today. But a few weeks ago, I began to feel uneasy about the series that we had planned, knowing where we are right now and who is in the room. And I, I can feel, you know, as your pastor, who's here and what you're dealing with. And I, at the same time that I was beginning to feel uneasy about the sermon series, I was beginning to pray a prayer for myself. I was beginning to pray for wisdom. And, and as I prayed it, like the word wisdom popped up all over the place, like when you buy a white car and all of a sudden everybody's got a white car, that thing. And that, that word was, was popping up and, and it resonated in my gut as a desperate need, at least for me, if not for us. So I began to be, pray personally, just, just for me. I began to pray for wisdom and almost immediately I began to realize that that is a hefty prayer. It's a prayer that seems to wake up the enemy of my soul. You know how they say, don't pray for patience, because then God will put you in situations that require patience, or don't pray for patience. Well, evidently, the same thing holds true for wisdom. Don't pray for wisdom. <laughs> if you don't want God to stretch your mind and test your responses and also make you aware of just what a dope you are at least 85% of the time, okay? If you want to stay blissfully ignorant, don't pray for wisdom. <laughs> My friend Rosario Picardo says this. He says, the Holy Spirit does not only make you speak in tongues, heal, dance, and sing. The Holy Spirit will also make you shut your mouth, apologize, have self-control, function in common sense, and examine yourself. <laughs> That's the part we don't talk about so much. So I began to pray for wisdom. I mean, praying every day and asking God where the gaps are in my way of thinking. And the Holy Spirit began to shut my mouth, push me towards self-control, ask me to function in common sense, and send me into some intense self-examination. You're having a little too much fun up on the front row <laughs> right here. I found myself stumbling in the dark, needing a different way of seeing things. And praying for wisdom awakened the enemy of my soul, who was perfectly happy for me to walk through life making knee-jerk decisions the way a child makes a decision in a donut shop, right? Don't give me nutritional value. I want the thing with the most sprinkles. That's the way a child does it. That is a no-brainer for the enemy of our souls, right? I mean, literally a no-brainer. But praying to take on the mind of Christ praying for a better response in my decision-making will make the enemy wake up and have to work a little. <laughs> so I've been feeling it. 
as I've begun to pray for wisdom, but I've stayed after it because I want the mind of Christ. Is anybody else in here with me? I want the mind of Christ. And that's what these next few weeks are about. My prayer is that we will be inspired to pray toward, get a hunger for the mind of Christ, that we might discover for ourselves, each one of us, a framework for thinking that cultivates the practice of biblical wisdom in our lives, in each one of us, in our daily choices. So we're not talking about, you know, picking something and saying, this is what the Bible says is wise. No, I'm actually, we're taking it from Solomon to James, and we're asking ourselves, what does it mean from, the, from a biblical perspective? What does it mean to carry biblical wisdom? How is it discussed? How is it modeled? How is it taught? And the goal, my goal for you, my unashamed, unabashed goal is this, that you will develop a hunger for biblical wisdom. And that you will seek healing for patterns of decision-making that have not served you or the people around you very well. So let's jump in. Turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to begin with the poster child for wisdom, King Solomon. And you probably know his story, but just so we're all on the same page, let me tell you a little about Solomon. He was the son of David. David was the second king of Israel. Saul was the first one, David was the second one, so Solomon was the third king. He was the son of David. Da um, Solomon was the child of David and Bathsheba. Do you remember that story? Speaking of maybe not the best choice I've ever made. The woman David had an affair with was Bathsheba. David had an affair with her, then killed her husband. So the whole thing is really messy. But Solomon was David's son, and that was the one that God had chosen for the third king of Israel. And so when David was on his deathbed, he made Solomon his successor. And then as soon as David died, Solomon killed his brother, married uh, somebody from uh, the daughter of an Egyptian pharaoh, and worshipped at the same temples with idols. He was his father's child, just a little unstable. <laughs> First Kings 3.3 kind of typifies Solomon's character. Listen to this. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking to the, according to the instructions given to him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices on the high places to other, to other gods. Solomon showed his love for the Lord, except. Solomon was mostly faithful, mostly solid, except. Which sounds really familiar to me. Mostly faithful, mostly solid, except. I have a suspicion that a lot of us live in this mostly except world. Mostly faithful, mostly solid, mostly decent choices, except. And of course that except is exactly what grace is for. But sometimes those exceptions can be killers when they send us outside our wisdom zone. When I default to the mind of Carolyn instead of leaning into the mind of Christ, I can do some damage. Is that just me? So I've been reading a book since I've been thinking about wisdom a lot. I've been looking for resources on wisdom, and I've been reading a book by uh, Jay Kim called Analog Christian, Cultivating Commitment, Resilience, and Wisdom in a Digital Age. Because I know, and I don't want to, 
hammer this. We talk about this way too much, but I do know that the digital age has changed the way my brain works. So Kim tells the story about a painter named Apelles who was commissioned to paint a portrait of Alexander the Great. When the painting was unveiled, a shoemaker who was looking at it noticed that the number of laces on one of the sandals was wrong. So he went to Apelles, the painter, and he told him that there, there was uh, a difference in the number of, of laces and he needed to fix that. And, and Apelles was very grateful, but then the shoemaker went on to um, notice several other things that he didn't like about the painting. And at some point, Apelles, the painter, said to him, Shoemaker, nothing but the shoe. <laughs> Stay in your lane. Exactly. That, is, that, that, that inspired a term, shoemaker, nothing but the shoe, inspired a term called ultra-crepidarian. Ultra-crepidarian. Say that together. Ultra-crepidarian. You can use that at a party. And it's expressing opinions on matters outside the scope of one's knowledge or expertise which is really easy to do in a digital age when you can grab two paragraphs about lobster eyes and stand up on the stage and act like you know everything about lobster eyes. <laughs> it's about being intelligent about things you don't know anything about, saying something because I can, saying something to fill the air or to fill my ego because I need to know something. Somebody has said wisdom, on the other hand, is the quality that keeps you from getting into situations where you need it. <laughs> Shoemaker, nothing but the shoe. That may be the greatest lesson in building a framework for wisdom. I suspect this is what all the biblical writers meant when they said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is having the humility to know that I don't know what I don't know. And this is why Solomon's prayer for wisdom is so notable. As shaky as his rise to power was, as often as his mostly was met with accept, he at least had the humility to admit what he didn't know and couldn't know outside the mind of God. So look at 1 Kings 3, 4. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices. Well, that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And that's the thing we all wish God would show up in a dream and ask us. I mean, Do that to me, God. Solomon answered, you've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David. But, listen to this, I am only a little child. And facts are, any of us standing in front of the most brilliant mind in the universe is just a child and do not know how to carry out my duties your servant is here among the people you've chosen a great people too num numerous to count or number so give your servant a discerning heart wisdom that's that's wisdom is so he can govern your people sorry uh give your give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong i have a whole lot more to say about that i'll say it next week 
for who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased, underline that word pleased in your Bible, that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself and nor have asked for the death of your enemies or the discernment and administering justice, I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. So it's tempting to treat this part of the story this, this, uh, like a formula, right? Can you hear it? To pray the prayer of Solomon. Lord, give your servant a discerning heart with a wink attached, you know? So God will know on the sly to give us all the things we're not asking for. Lord, make me wise so that I'll know how to work the stock market and can get rich. Lord, make me wise so that I'll be well-respected among my colleagues and my children will think me brilliant. Lord, make me wise so that I can live just like I want to live, but still look like I'm making good choices. Lord, make me wise so that. The so that makes all the difference because it reveals motive and proves what we really deep down value. And oh my goodness, I can sure spend my motives and values and fool myself Sometimes I can fool the people around me, although I think I fool them less than I think I fool them. But God is not fooled. God is not fooled. So, so friends, wisdom begins here. Here, with motive. Do you remember that we said wisdom is having the humility to know that I don't know what I don't know? And sometimes what I don't know is my own heart. So wisdom begins with what some folks often call a searching and fearless moral inventory. Until I am ruthlessly honest with myself and God about my motives, I will have no room for the mind of Christ. And so I encourage you, I challenge you in fact, this week to write the words so that at the top of a page and begin to name your underlying motives. Yeah, I'm praying that, I can't even think of one right now. I'm trying to think of one, but yeah, I'm praying this thing, but what's my real motive for it? Yeah, I'm asking for this, but what am I, what's really going on beneath the surface? You have to ask Mother Teresa to get out of your brain for a minute so the real you can sit down and tell you what your real motives are. <laughs> because decisions determine destiny and motives determine decisions. So Solomon's so that. Lord, give your servant a discerning heart so that. That's what made his prayer pleasing to God. Do you remember it says it made, he was pleased, God was pleased, the Lord was pleased that he asked for wisdom because he asked for the sake of others. In that moment, never mind whether he would live it out or not because he wouldn't, not well. Solomon would always live a mostly accept life. But in that moment, Solomon's prayer 
His, his motives must have been pure, and he knew right from wrong. He wanted to govern, or he, he knew what the right prayer was, and he wanted to govern well as a leader to do this thing with integrity that he'd been destined to do. Solomon's request was the mirror opposite of the shoemaker's mistake. It was, Lord, keep me in my lane. Give me wisdom to know the difference between right and wrong. Help me to think justly so I can leave this world better than I found it. Give me the mind of Christ, not for the sake of me, but for the sake of the kingdom of God. Biblical wisdom is more than just objective truth. The Hebrew word, I want you to, the Hebrew word for wisdom means, hold on for this, wisdom. <laughs> but I'll say more about the characters that make up that word next week. It's very cool. But th there's three Greek words for wisdom, three different Greek words. And I, this, you're going to have to hang on for my, uh, while I bring out my geek for a minute, um, my Greek geek. Sophia is the noun. I want you to think of that as the principle or the objective truth, this thing I can point to and say, that's true and right and just. Proverbs uses a lot of that and uses the term Sophia a lot. In fact, personifies it. So, it's, so Sophia is the noun. Phronesis is the verb. It's what we do with that truth. It's how we live wisely. It's how we carry it out. But sunesis, the third one, is like the bridge between those two things, between the noun and the verb. Somehow, between the noun and the verb, it flows through our processor, and we decide how to use the noun and how to live it out. Does this make sense? So, so it's like, sort of like those big bagel toasters at Panera. You know what I'm talking about? This was the metaphor I came up with. You'll tell me a better one afterwards. Um, but I'm thinking about, you know, you split the, the bagel in half, you lay it on the, the bagel thing, and it goes through this big, it's a, it's a big um, machine. And we watch, it goes, disappears. We don't know what happens to it. When it comes out the bottom, it is perfectly toasted bagels. Sunesis is that machine. <laughs> it's, a part of the, of, it's the part of wisdom, it's the noun of wisdom that processes it and turns it into a verb without losing the integrity of it. Sunesis is the key to the whole thing. No wonder Paul would say, be transformed by the renewing of your minds and be made new in the attitude of your minds and take on the minds of Christ and do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is because Paul got it that the processor is the whole deal. Paul quoted extensively in Romans from, get this, the Wisdom of Solomon, an ancient book called The Wisdom of Solomon. He saw it, that knowledge alone isn't wisdom, that right behavior without right motive isn't wisdom either. Wisdom is knowledge guided by understanding. This was what Solomon was asking for. He was asking God to holify his delivery mechanism, his internal processor, so he might operate from something deeper than facts or knowledge or morality. This Old Testament king may not have had words for it, but he was praying for the mind of Christ. Not for his sake, but for the sake of others 
and as an act of worship. Do you hear what I just said? He prayed for the mind of Christ as an act of worship. So I want you to just do this. Hold your head. Hold your head right now. Hold your head. Hold your head. And say, Lord, holyfy my processor. Holyfy my processor. Holyfy my delivery mechanism. Jesus, please. Yeah. Look at verse 15. You can let go of your heads. Unless you feel led to hold on to your head for a long time, because there's a lot there. He did it for the sake of others, and he did it as an act of worship. Solomon awoke, and he realized everything he'd seen was just was a dream. It was, it was, God had come to him in a vision and had spoken to him in, in the middle of the night. And so the first thing he did was to return to Jerusalem, stand before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then he gave a feast for his court. I want to notice that Solomon's first act after praying that prayer was to go to Jerusalem, stand before the ark of the covenant, and offer signs of worship to God. So the chapter begins with him sacrificing in high places where idols were worshipped, and now here he is on the other side of this prayer, standing in the Holy of Holies before the author, standing at the, at the Ark of the Covenant before the author of all wisdom, humbly aware of his place in the world. And then the story gives us proof of Solomon's prayer. In verse 16, we get the famous story of the two mamas who fought over a baby. Verse 16, now two prostitutes, notice that they're prostitutes, came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, pardon me, my Lord, and I just hear her in tears. This woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby, and we were alone. There was nobody in the house but the two of us, no other witnesses. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. And she put him by her breast and she put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw it's not the son I had born. The other woman said, Nuh-uh. The living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the other one said, Nah, the dead one is yours, and the living one is mine. And so they argued, standing there before the king. The king said, This one says, My son is alive, and your son is dead. The other one says, Your son is dead, mine is alive. <coughs> and then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king, and he gave an order Cut the living child in two, and give half the one, and the half the other. Everybody will be happy. The woman whose son was alive, if she was upset before, oh my goodness. She said, please don't do that to her, to him. Give her the baby. Just give her the baby, don't kill him. But the other said, well, then neither of us will have him. No, cut him in half. If I can't have him, nobody gets him. The king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Don't kill him. She's the mother. 
When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw he had wisdom from on high to administer justice. A less wise Solomon would surely have squashed these women. I mean, think about it. These were prostitutes. These were people with no power standing in front of the man who had all power. He could have taken that kid from, just said, look, no, I need another servant in my house. I'll raise him in my own palace. He could have killed all three of them just for bothering him. He could have, he could have um, gotten very wrapped up in the facts called in family members and witnesses to attest to the character of these two women and produce evidence, he could have piled up a lot of facts and rendered a judgment that would have been perfectly legitimate. But here's the thing. Listen, if he had used his power, then power would have been the baby he preserved. If he'd used facts without understanding then being right would have been the baby he preserved. Or if he demanded they all become his servants, then self-satisfaction would have been the baby he preserved. Do you hear it? There's a big lesson here about which baby we protect in our rush to preserve our own power or to save face or to appease our lusts or our comforts or just to be right we can end up saving the wrong baby or killing the wrong baby we can be so focused on our way of seeing the world or on seeing a situation the way we need to see it so that self is preserved that we miss noticing all the things we chop up on the way to preserving our own interests That's where we so often lose it, right? We know what's right, and we know how we ought to live, but somewhere in the delivery mechanism, on the bridge between noun and verb, there's a self-interested glitch that keeps us from wisdom, from the mind of Christ. So, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me the mind of Christ for the sake of those around me who desperately need me to process what the world has handed me. That is biblical wisdom. It is taking on the mind of Christ, whatever the personal cost, for the sake of living the values of God. Biblical wisdom is knowing and living the values of God, which means that our minds, our delivery systems, our wisdom makers must be transformed for the sake of the world, for the sake of our world. So these are Paul's words, but we find the concept from cover to cover in this manual for living. Will you read this together with me? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Solomon tells us, I mean, he teaches us by, you don't already have to have it. You don't have to be all the way there. You can pray for wisdom before you've lived into it. You can pray for eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive even before you have it or know what it will look like in your situation. Solomon's story also reminds us there is grace for the gaps, for the mostly 
accept parts of our lives that just aren't there yet. It's, it's, it's not right behavior God is after. It's right heart. So on any journey toward wisdom, listen to me. On any journey toward wisdom, and we are on this journey now for six weeks, grace will rise up to meet us. Though Jesus was holy, he was sinless, in fact. He understands our weaknesses perfectly. Even though he rose above them, he he understood the pain. He allowed himself to process and to take in and to experience all the pain and daily anguish we face. And so he has nothing but grace and mercy to meet us when we come to him because he has taken on our sorrows. He has known our griefs. He has seen our gaps. And he has chosen through his own sacrifice the most perfectly wise act in the history of humanity to overcome them. Will you stand? So it strikes me that we have some decisions to make this morning, decisions to determine destiny, remember? I wonder where you need to pray the, this morning to, to take on the mind of Christ. Where do you need to pray? Is it at the point of your salvation? Is it finally fully saying, you know what, I need, I need to go ahead and admit, God, that I, I, I'm not there and I need to be there. I need faith. I don't know what I don't know about you or about me and you. I just need to commit or recommit my life. Maybe salvation is the place where you need to take on the mind of Christ. Maybe it's life purpose for you. You just don't know what you're made for. You're, or you've gotten lost in the wilderness somehow. You just need to, God, I need you to purify my motives so I can purify my life's purpose. Understand it, lean into it, even if it's hard. Maybe it's relationships for you where you need to take on the mind of Christ. And I'll tell you, if you start praying for God to give you the mind of Christ around your relationships, he will show you things about yourself that you're not aware of right now. Maybe you're ready for that. Or maybe for you it's, um, I don't remember, what, it's the biggest, most important one that's responses. I, I just want to take on the mind of Christ so that my response to life as it is, taking this world as it is, not as I would have it, so that my response reflects the wisdom of God and makes the world around me better. If one of those areas is your area of prayer, I want to invite you to take this time to make that prayer your own. You can come to the front if you'd like to. You can make your chair into an altar. You can find somebody right next to you and ask them to pray with you. Do whatever you need to do. Lord Jesus, my prayer for every person in this room is that they would, is that we, God, that we would somehow this morning find ourselves more fully, completely hungry for the mind of Christ. That we would be willing this morning, God, to, to admit that we don't know what we don't know. We just don't know it. We're tired of the brand of decisions that we're making. We're tired of our responses. 
coming out of self-interest or maybe self-hatred. And we're ready for something better, God. We're ready for a better brand. And we're, at, we're asking God for you to holify the processor. Do that for us, Jesus. Do that for us, Jesus. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.